as I've become more liberated and more soft in my grasp on these things and more neutral about my body, I've had energy that I've been able to pour into other parts of my life. Welcome back. You're listening to Let It Out with me. I'm your host, Katie Dalebout. This is a long one and one that I shared about on my Instagram stories a couple days ago. Just so excited to release this episode as I was editing it and listening to it. It took me several days to get through and it might also for you. And I found myself rationing it. To the point where I was walking and listening to a little bit one morning and a little bit the next morning and then the third day when I didn't have it to listen to, it threw me off because it just made me feel better listening to this conversation for two mornings. Savala is a writer, she's an attorney, she's wonderful (laughs) and I hope we'll become a friend the whole like trope of this episode was me being like I heard you on our mutual friend Christy Harrison's podcast food psych which if you don't know Christy and you don't know food psych what are you doing it's such a wonderful podcast and resource and Christy's a friend of mine she's done my podcast several times I've done her podcast a couple times and she's a mentor to me and a friend of Savala And, and a couple months ago I heard Savala on Christie's podcast and learned a lot and also just liked her. I like her voice. I like how articulate she is and smart, but also just interesting and chill and funny. And when we got to the end and she was recommending things, I was just like, yeah, you're, you're someone that I look up to and would like to hang out with regularly. We touch on anxiety. She's an anxious one, like a lot of us. (laughs) We talk about that specifically connected to technology and how we use our iPhones. We talk about the need for resting, meditation. She's very articulate in the way she explains meditation at the end of this episode. We talk about romantic relationships and something she said about that stuck with me since we recorded this conversation this summer and I haven't stopped thinking about it. We talk about the importance of bread and butter and how both of us denied ourselves eating it for way too long. We talk about race and lack of size diversity in law, which is a field that she has worked in and works in. I really open up about my call it diet relapse, call it eating disorder relapse, my unrecovery and kind of re-recovery and being in process with body image and dieting and stress. And and I just really get into that and we have a nice conversation about it and are able to laugh about it. We talk about injuries related to trying to manipulate our weight and size. We talk about style and getting dressed and personal style when you don't feel good about your body. It's a great one, and I really enjoy Savala, and it's a long one, 
But I didn't want to cut it. I really wanted you to hear the full conversation. You can listen to it over a couple of days. You can ration it like I did. But like I said, she's articulate. She's funny. She's the author of the forthcoming book, What I Heard Through the Wall, which is a collection of essays that will be published with Simon & Schuster in a couple of years. And you can hear her on NPR, Forbes, The Huffington Post, Bust, The Nation. She's been in various newspapers. And definitely, if you want more of Savala, I would go straight on over to Christy Harrison's podcast and listen to her episode on that as well. Thank you guys for listening this week. If you like this podcast, share it with a friend who you think would also like it. A quick housekeeping things. Number one, I'm keeping my Let a Podcast Out workshop open until the end of the week. So if you were thinking about it and decided not to do it, but now you want to do it, I've been getting so many emails about it. So I'm just going to keep it open and you can, I mean, I'm not keeping it open forever, just another week, but if you really still want to do it, I will let you in. It's a, for people who maybe are new, it's a workshop that I do, like a writer's workshop for podcasting where you can learn how to start a podcast and take an idea you already have, or maybe a podcast you already have and shape it and put it into the world. It's a creative project incubator that I'm really, really excited about. And I'm so happy about all the people who are already in it. So if you're listening to this and you're already in the workshop, Welcome. I'm so excited to have you. And if you really want to join, you still can for a couple more days. If you guys want to join me for a sleepover, come to Kerpalo. I'm leading my yearly Remix Your Resolutions, Change Your Relationship with Goal Setting, Journaling Camp. I love Kerpalo. It's one of my favorite places in the world. So much great Ayurvedic food and yoga and nature and meditation and breath work and all of the things. It's like a wellness wonderland in the Berkshires in Massachusetts. And I'm going to be there the 27th and 28th of December. So it's not actually on New Year's Eve this year because I didn't want to do it on those dates. So it's a little bit before between Christmas and New Year's. And I would love to have you there if you live close by or you could come in for it with friends or family. It would be a really nice vacation. And it's really cool because a lot of people are off of work that time of year anyway. Get obsessed with Savala like I am. Enjoy this episode. Stick around to the end for some likes and learns. And I'll talk to you guys then. Listen, my skin is very sensitive and I don't try out a lot of products, but I did try out this one called BioClarity a bunch of years ago and I still use it and I love it. And now they are supporting the podcast. They're a clean green skincare routine brand and they're 100% cruelty-free, paraben-free, sulfate-free, no artificial fragrances. They're 100% vegan and you can try them risk-free. They'll give you your money back if you don't like them. They make this easy to use skincare regimen that has great for you ingredients that you put on your skin and has really helped me, honestly. I like the way the texture feels. It has this really potent color in the product that I want you guys to see. It's all natural and 
it's really easy to understand exactly what ingredients are in it. And I think it's helped me with some of my hyperpigmentation from acne scarring and knock on wood, but you know, my pimples are, are doing great right now. I use their clear skin routine. It's for combination oily, breakout prone skin. They have other regimens too, but that's the one I use. And it comes with everything you need to, you know, have your skin be okay. I really love it. It's not overly drying. It helps with the redness and the hyperpigmentation and it kind of evens my skin tone out. I think you guys would really like it too. There are three steps, cleanse, treat, restore. I used their, I had a little pimple the other day and I used their spot treat and I swear it just kind of like went away the next the next day which you know I sound like an infomercial right now but honestly that happened but who knows anyway I think you guys would really like it try it and just see for yourself you know there's it's risk-free so the link is in the show notes bioclarity.com and right now for you guys you can save 40 percent on a skincare routine plus an additional 15% off of everything on their website. I really like their oil too. That's an incredible deal. And you just have to use my code, let it out at checkout. So that's bioclarity.com for 40% off your routine plus 15% off everything on their website with my code, let it out at checkout. Thank you so much for doing this, Savala. I've been so excited to chat with you. You are such a talented writer and articulate person in general. And hearing you on our friend Christy Harrison's podcast a couple months ago, several months ago, I heard your voice and I was actually listening as I was walking the bridge to Dumbo to have dinner with Christy. And I was just like, dude, I want to be friends with her. I was just like, she's so cool. And Christy was like, yeah, you should totally have her on the podcast. And I was like, I already emailed her. Well, thank you so much. And who who knew just, you know, a few hundred emails later. I know. (laughs) Friendship is in the works. I'm, I'm really excited to be talking with you too. And, you know, just to to see where the conversation goes today. I know. Well, okay. Let's start with that because before we started recording, we started talking about canceling plans and just the way the world seems to be with that. And because we had to reschedule this several times before we were able to actually make it happen. And we both were kind of lamenting how that's just the way our lives have been going. And you were saying, you were starting to say that you wonder if it's giving you maybe some social anxiety. Can you say more about that? Yeah. So I I will be brutally honest because it's funny. Ultimately, it's funny to me. Even today, as much as I've been looking forward to this conversation and you know, for months, we first talked in April or something. Yeah. Even today, this little tiny voice in my brain was like, maybe you should just email Katie and see if she wants to do it next week instead of today. You know, like, same. same. <laughs> <laughs> it's just extremely odd how I find myself having social anxiety, even though I'm someone who's really fed and nourished by social interactions and. I'm extroverted. I mean, of course, I also have, you know, my moments of introversion and needing to be alone or bring my energy in or just be more quiet in a social space. But yeah, I think that 
for me anyway, something about the way that our phones have really changed the way we communicate. It's almost like the muscle of socializing has atrophied just a little bit or it gets tired more quickly or, you know, like before you exercise, your your mind might, you know, say, I don't want to go, you know, I don't want to go to yoga class or whatever, even though it's probably the best part of your day. You still have that little voice that might resist it. Mm-hmm. I feel like that has become the case with me with socializing to some extent. And I've, I've joked about it with friends of mine and we actually kind of like play cancel, you know, just to make fun of ourselves. Like, okay, should we cancel this, you know, over text? Like we're supposed to meet up, but should we cancel it? You know, ha ha ha. Yeah. It's so interesting. Cause I think what you're describing is dread, you know, like, it's which is really sad because I, I know that you weren't necessarily dreading this conversation or you're not dreading the dinner plans, but it kind of feels the same in my mind. Same with the yoga class or, or doing exercise. That was always a big thing for me. I haven't been able to exercise recently, which I'll we'll get to because I have I have to tell you I have this st- a story that relates to a story I heard you tell. We'll get there, but. Okay when I was going to exercise classes, there were some that I would look forward to, but the majority of them I would kind of dread and then after feel really glad I went. And it's the same thing with a lot of social interactions where it's kind of like a hard workout that it can feel good after. But when you're... I kind of have to psych myself up to go, especially dating, man. Like dating is like a whole different animal. You know, it's like there's... It's interesting. And I think what you said about social media being involved in that is complicated and interesting. And I think the easy thing to do, I was just writing an essay about this because I wrote an essay a couple of years ago. I'll send it to you for the fullest about how my first hangover yeah. at 28 was like the best thing that ever happened to me after <laughs> intuitive eating. Because oh, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. It like taught me intuitive eating because I was so rigid and orthorexic and controlling with food in my body that I hadn't had, I didn't drink for so long. And then I like had my first hangover and all I wanted was cookies and sleep. And I couldn't force myself to go to a class and I couldn't force myself to be productive with work. And I had to eat whatever I wanted. And it was so wonderful. And I was like, oh shit, this is intuitive eating. Like I was just pretending. And I think that dichotomy of staying in versus going out. It's like staying in is this controlled environment where you've got climate control, you've got every piece of entertainment ever made, Mm. and you've got all your special food when you go to bed. Like Everything's controllable. And in a conversation or in leaving the house in any manner, it's not controlled. You know what I mean? I do. And it's interesting you say control because... I trace some of this phenomena and myself anyway to being just kind of an anxious person. The tendency to feel anxiety is kind of, it's the thing that's going to flare up when I'm stressed out or I'm tired. I'm kind of have too much on my plate. You know, I'm going to get anxious. So and I've always been that way since I was a little kid. And anxiety and control, they're related, right? You're anxious about things that you can't control for the most part. So To me, what you're saying really rings true that there's some aspect of it, you know, that's about 
kind of just submitting to the flow of life in a way and the vulnerability of that. And I think also, I mean, this might age me, but I remember really clearly life like before the iPhone, you know? Yeah. Uh, Because I was born in 1980, you know, so all through high school and college, like we had flip phones or pagers. And when I was young living in New York, we didn't have the iPhone or anything even close to it. So I personally feel so kind of bombarded and like out of breath trying to just keep up with the pace of information and information exchange and the kind of requirement to be constantly producing something that is valuable enough that other people are going to comment on it or like it or, you know, I feel that that's a little bit foreign and overwhelming to me, but nevertheless, I do it, right? Like I have an Instagram account, I'm online, but I think that the energy that it takes to keep up with this iPhone-based way of socializing depletes the part of my brain that would be doing, you know, pre-iPhone socializing. So that adds to it. It's like this mix of, you know, being a little more anxious about the state of the world probably than I was five years ago and a sense of kind of depletion and like wanting a legitimate desire to kind of pull my energy in and pause, you know, Mm -hmm. a combination of those things, at least for me. It's so interesting what you said about the connection between anxiety and a lot of things flying at you, essentially overwhelm because I'm definitely an anxious person and I never really had the language for that when I was younger. And I thought that I just, oh, I've always been anxious, but I didn't have the language for it. And I think on some level, that's probably true. However, I think having an iPhone exasperates all of my anxiety Mm-hmm. And just being a person who does a lot of things, which is just my temperament, and I've always been that way, exasperates that. And I don't know how to temper it. Like, I, I almost don't know because I just had this like sense of nostalgia for something I had never even experienced when you were talking about living in New York when you didn't have an iPhone. And at first I was like, oh my God, I never would have been able to like learn the subway or get anywhere. Yeah, you would have. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's what everyone says. I am like, I told, I would have, we all would have figured it out. That's true. But I probably would be less anxious because I just, even today, like there is nothing that gives me more anxiety when I already have a long to-do list mm-hmm. and a bunch of emails. And then I get bombarded with a bunch of texts. Like there's nothing more anxiety provoking to me. Even from like your best friends, you know, like, oh my God, like just, I just need a minute to breathe. And I, I am not trying to go on like an anti-technology screed. You know, I use all the stuff. Everything is a mixed bag. There's plenty of great things about my iPhone, blah, blah, blah. But Mm -hmm. I do know that it's basically like, it makes me less self-reliant, you know, and it generates a lot of what ifs in my mind. And I noticed that when a couple of months ago, I was running errands and I accidentally left my phone in the car and I was in Trader Joe's, you know, and realized I didn't have my phone. And I had this like, (gasps) you know, moment of panic. Like, what if someone's trying to call me? What if it went really like off the deep end? Because that's my brain. Like, what if I get kidnapped and there's no GPS? (laughs) You know, it went from like, what if someone's texting me something funny all the way to, you know, complete doom? 
as an anxious brain does. As an anxious brain does. Yeah. But I didn't like it. And I, you know, I just remember the days of leaving my house without a phone, basically. Right. The fact of having access to, you know, I mean, this is FOMO. It's not like I'm saying anything extremely interesting, but having access to all this information and people being able to reach you. And it makes me anyway, afraid that I'm going to need it. You know what I mean? Right. When in reality, you often don't need it. And so what I started doing after that day was leaving my phone in the car when you know I'm running errands or purposefully sometimes leaving at home when I take a walk with my daughter, we walk to the corner store and it feels really, really good. It sort of feels like stretching when you haven't stretched in a long time, you know, kind of energetically or emotionally feels that way, which is great, but also kind of like, wah, wah, like I'm so dependent on this thing that it's a huge break to leave it in the car for five minutes while I run into Target. Yeah, it's really, I used to do it a lot when I'd go out to dinner with my boyfriend and I would leave my phone at home and you know, I knew that he had his, so it was it wasn't like a, a need in any way, and I was just able to be so present. Yeah. And it's a really interesting phenomenon. And I think the other reason, and I think you were touching on this kind of with FOMO, is that it really affects for for me my anxiety pools in decision making. I have really, really like an OCD with decision making. Like I'll make a decision and then reverse the decision and then make the decision again to the point where it's really bad. And I live in like the worst city for it. The iPhone is terrible for it. But you were alluding to it where it's like when 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we just didn't know what all of our options were. You know, we didn't have Yelp and we didn't have an app that told you what everybody else is having for breakfast so you could compare. Yeah, And I think just what that alone is doing to our minds, my mind is really fascinating to me. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. It's uh, fascinating and it gives me pause. And like, I'm one of those people who's considered getting the flip phone, you know, and just having my phone at home so I can post on Instagram periodically. I haven't pulled the trigger on that, but it's bumping around at the back of my mind. Yeah. On the other hand, it's great to be able to talk to friends who live overseas and to get my fix of like, fat body positivity on Instagram when I want, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag. And sharing your creative work, you know, I mean, I think, (laughs) I think about this all the time. It's like, (laughs) yeah, like you're right. I probably could have learned the subway, but I'm really glad I didn't have to, you know, I'm really glad I had a phone just tell me where to go. And then also I'm really, I'm able to share my feelings with people who want to hear it, which before the iPhone, I, it would have been more challenging to get my my writing scene or my work scene so instantaneously. It's, it really is, you know, it's, it's both the most wonderful tool and also maybe a weapon, you know? Yeah. And I think we're figuring it out. It would be nice if the technology folks kind of were a little more robust in helping us figure it out, you know, as opposed to making the technology kind of addictive, but we're figuring it out and I'm, I'm optimistic about the culture. Yeah. Over- how do you think social media affects diet culture, which is something I want to pivot into talking about? Yeah. Well, for me, it's been really positive, but that's only because social media is a place where a lot of fat people congregate, you know, so to speak. And 
Um, I use that word fat just as a descriptor. You know, I know it's not for everyone, but I use it without anything attached to it other than the definition, right? So for me, it's been amazing to be able to kind of develop like a peer group or a squad or a cohort of, you know, mostly women, often women of color who have fat bodies, you know, whether they're smaller fat bodies or larger fat bodies, who have different styles, who have different ways of performing gender or sexuality or different ways that they put their body out there. It's been a godsend for Mm -hmm. me. And I just, I thank God that it's, that that's real and it's happening. I don't go into the sort of corners of social media that are really focused on dieting or like further down the spectrum, you know, inspiration about eating disorders and things like that. I'm sure they're there, you know, from what I, what I hear and what I read. But for the most part, for me, it's been, it's been really, really fabulous. And I'm incredibly thankful for it. Yeah, I know we have a mutual friend and mentor, Isabel Fox and Duke told me very early on, I think on the podcast, the only proven way to change body image was exposure therapy and to follow people your size or bigger and look at them every day, regardless of how you felt about how they looked. Yeah. That is a great tool for, for doing that. It's a fabulous tool. And even if you take some of the kind of ethos of Instagram, but dial it down in your own life, it can be wonderful. I mean, I went through a phase when I was really kind of early on in recovery, but knew that I was gaining weight and wasn't really sure how I felt about that. I mean, I did know how I felt about it, but I, I was trying to feel neutral about it. I went through a phase where um, I basically took an outfit of the day photograph. I didn't post it, but I would just put my iPhone on timer and you know stand a few feet away and take a photograph and look at it because I wanted to normalize my body to myself. You know, it, it didn't involve that performative public aspect of yeah. social media, but it was a social media tool that I just kind of flipped a little bit. And I think, I mean, IFD, like she's the greatest. Mm-hmm. And she's right. Representation is totally curative and totally important. And I always think about like, I was trying to explain to my husband why representation matters. He happens to be a white guy. He's also cis. He's thin. He's tall. He's able-bodied. You know, he he sort of ticks all those boxes. <laughs> and I was trying to explain to him why representation is so important for people who don't get enough of it. And I said, imagine you went into someone else's house and your job was to put away all the dishes, right? There was like a sink full of clean dishes and you had to put them away. How would you know where to put the cups and the plates and the forks, right? Well, you'd look around and you'd put them where the other ones were, right? And that's kind of what we do with ourselves and with each other. You figure out your place in society by looking for where people like you are in society. And I know as a woman... I was taught so early on and I'm continually taught that my gender, my womanhood, my sex is a foundational piece of who I am, you know? So that is like one of the things that I'm going to use to sort myself. 
And same thing being fat, same thing being black. So, you know, if all of the like fat black female cups are in a pile behind the garbage, like and you don't see them or you only see them in this sort of dark diminished place that tells you about where they belong, quote unquote. So being able to, to see women like myself and people who have bodies that are not the cover of the magazine body, but different from my own, taking up space and kind of claiming for themselves where they belong, it's been really incredibly liberating and incredibly freeing. Yeah, that's, that's a really good analogy. Well, thank you. <laughs> I want to go back because you you were so not always this way in terms yeah. of your thinking and your body image. So can you talk about your childhood and what you were like as a kid? Yeah. You mean what I was like in terms of kind of dieting and body stuff? Yeah, I mean, or- I kind of want to know both. I want to know what you were like in general. And then I really want to get into, yeah, I want to get into your childhood and your very, very early onset connection with diet culture. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure how my, my mom or dad would describe me as a kid, but I would say I was a good kid. I was the kid that like always did my homework, super imaginative. I could play in the backyard kind of talking to myself and made up worlds for hours at a time. I carried around a little basket of pens everywhere I went because I wanted to be an artist and I wanted to be a worker. (laughs) You know, I think I was a a normal kid in, in most ways. Of course, one of the ways that was probably a little bit abnormal is that I was dieting from such an early age, you know, from two or three I was going on and off diets with my mom, who not so much anymore. I mean, she's in her late 70s now, but up until pretty darn recently was what you might call a yo-yo dieter. I think that's sort of a judgmental term, but it gets the idea across. You know, basically she was always on that perpetual quest to to perfect her body, as so many women are. And it became part of my life through her mothering, which was very loving, um, but also had that aspect to it when I was a pretty young kid and stayed a major part of my life for maybe 30, 35 years. And, you know, I think that she kind of inherited that set of behaviors from the culture broadly, as many people do, but also from her own family and the women in her family, and probably to some extent from the men in her family, just not from their modeling of the behavior, but from their expectations around it or lack of intervention, you know, like a a once removed type of teaching of that behavior. I mean, my earliest memories around food are of not wanting to eat because I didn't want to be fat. And we lived, based on the, the house that we lived in, I know that I was, I could not have been more than about three when that was happening. Mm-hmm. You talked about this story in your episode with Christy about in second grade, you were in some sort of program yeah. went around and told your weight. Can you tell that story? I sure can. So I think probably when I was in first or second grade, uh, my mom en- enrolled me in this program. I can't remember right now if it was called Shape Down or Shape Up. I think it was actually called Shape Down. 
But in any event, it was what you might basically call like an outpatient weight loss counseling program for kids. And I remember it involved, you know, a pretty strict diet, of course, in terms of what you could and couldn't eat. It involved pretty paternalistic little exercises in a workbook that were like, little Susie is grumpy that she can't play with her favorite toy. What should she do? Go in the kitchen and eat a chocolate chip cookie or go outside and run around and get that upset energy out. It was like pretty paternalistic, I think is the word. And also very much targeted to teaching kids how to lose weight. And one aspect that I remember really vividly from that program, the weekly weigh-ins. And then when I was in second grade, I'm not entirely sure how much of it was driven from the program and how much of it was, you know, my mom's idea, but it was some combination of their ideas. I started to have to do this thing where at our first assembly of the week, I would say how much I weighed. So I would report my weight to the whole class. And if I had lost weight, you know, everyone would would applaud. And if I had gained weight, it was sort of like, oh, you know, good try and we'll help you this week. And that was sort of the second part of that aspect of the program was that the, the kids were empowered to basically comment on my food choices and help kind of police my choices in the lunch line. You know, don't have the the pasta today, you know, get the salad or whatever, um, or to come up to me and, and just sort of comment on my body, you know, it was totally allowed or encouraged. And I think, I mean, I have to assume that the thinking was that this would be supportive, right? Some combination of like accountability and support would flow out of this dynamic. But of course, I mean, that would be brutal for me right now as an adult, let alone as a six or seven-year-old. And I did not like it. I felt really ashamed and responsible and kind of like I owed something to my peers, you know, related to my body. And I wanted to please them. But I also felt resentful. I mean, it wasn't fun. I don't think that I was able to express that. You know, I don't think I had the wherewithal or the vocabulary to say that to my mom or to the the weight loss counselor. But I know that I could not stand it. And it's a few things I remember from from like second grade. Yeah. It's so hard. And you talked about how this really continued all through your adolescence. And can you talk a little bit about your mom and your mom's side of the family. And then that contrast between your dad's side of the family. I know there was one moment in particular with your aunt where you got one comment on your body that was positive. Can you talk about what the rest of your teenage years were like? Yeah. I mean, I think it's important as I'm talking about my family to kind of sketch out the racial identities of of my family because my family is a mixed family my dad's side is black and Mexican and my mom's side is white, basically English and Scottish, but without much connection to those countries anymore. My mom's side of the family was also a bit waspy, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, at least cultural in terms of kind of their taste, you know, and certainly in, in terms of their sense of what was an appropriate body and how they read deviance, you know, in the body. 
So fatness was sort of undesirable, it was undisciplined, it was absolutely a choice. And I think that that was probably the primary message and sort of the strongest, most steady kind of force that I felt being exerted on me because I lived with my mom and was really close with my grandparents and just that side of the family. And, you know, sort of like with second grade, it was just a very open topic of conversation. You know, my body was, was sort of like the weather, you know, <laughs> I was just like totally fine to talk about it. And most of the comments were like, not very nice, you know, like, oh, you're getting so big, you know, at seeing, seeing each other at holidays or something like that. And all the while my weight is, you know, fluctuating because I'm going off and on these diets. And when I'm on the diets, I'm often sneaking food. My sister and my brother are older and happen to be just genetically very thin. And so they were never they were never messed with in the way that I was. You know, they had their own crosses to bear. But in the family, that wasn't something about them that got a lot of attention that was negative. So they were allowed to have all kinds of sweets and I would sneak them and get in trouble. Um, and that was when I was dieting. And then when I wasn't dieting, you know, my mom and I were in a more kind of like binge mode. But the whole time, it was all happening against this backdrop of feeling really ashamed and grossed out by my body and feeling that I had a duty to sort of protect other people from it. I went through periods of time where I didn't want to hug anyone, you know, including my siblings, because I didn't want to, almost as if I had something infectious, you know, or sort of a, a gross like skin disorder, you know, like I didn't want to force them to have to be close to my body. There were a few kind of points of light in all of this that came really from my dad's side of the family. Like I was saying before, they're Black, they're Mexican. And of course, it doesn't make sense to, to describe a culture as monolithic. But basically, Mexican people and Black people tend to be more celebratory, more kind of open to body diversity, to fatness, especially in women. That can come with its own stuff, you know, in terms of like being sexualized too soon and that kind of thing with a sort of chubby body that looks more developed than it actually is. But the positives for me were that my dad, he just was not judgmental. I didn't grow up with him. I didn't live with him. So I didn't see him that often. But when he saw me, he just loved me, you know? Mm. And he didn't comment about what I ate or what I looked like. And uh, he himself was big. He was like 6'4 and 300 pounds and kind of like a linebacker. And so I felt... I didn't feel weird next to him. I felt like, oh, I'm kind of the same type of build as him walking down the street, you know? It felt like finding the shelf with all the other cups, kind of. And then his sisters, a lot of them were or are fat, curvy, whatever you want to call it. And one of them, when I was maybe 12 or so on a trip down to see her in LA, she called me a beautiful Amazon. And it was absolutely the first time I remember hearing something positive about my body. And at the time that she said it, you know, I was definitely chubby, maybe fat. You know, I was big. I'm, I'm almost six feet tall. 
broad shoulders, you know, big feet. Like I'm just a big human, even when I'm skinny, but I was big and fat at that time. And, you know, she said it with light in her eyes and her arms wide open to give me a hug. And it was a little kind of dose of medicine that somehow has persisted (laughs) in my mind and in my heart, you know, these 20, 30 years later, I still remember Auntie Renee saying that. And I remember the healing of feeling like I belonged versus the kind of constant injury of feeling like I didn't belong with the other side of my family. So interesting how comments and just moments in our lives stay with us. I've been thinking about that a lot because on the other end of the spectrum, I would attach so much meaning to little comments about my body when I was underweight or when I was just at a weight that I knew wasn't honest for me, I guess is a good way to say it, where it's like little things I almost don't even want to say on here, but like, oh, Katie's so tiny or you, you know, you can wear whatever you want or that like, whatever, whatever. And I didn't like the amount of dopamine I was getting from that and have even had nostalgia for those comments when I've been at different body sizes. And I guess it just goes to show that commenting on bodies is complicated just in general because saying something wonderful about someone's body can be really useful, like in this case, but something problematic. And those people to me weren't trying to, they're just products of diet culture as we know and the world and beauty standards. But that was really problematic for me. and, And it's not their fault that I attached to it. And in some ways it was kind of neutral. Like some of those comments, like I remember one and that obviously still sticks with me of someone saying like, oh, well, two drinks for her is like five for someone else because she's so small. And like even that, like that's just like a fact. Like I am a smaller person, even when I am like at a weight that's honest for me, that is just true, you know? So, but I, I made a meaning to it, you know? And it's just very interesting how these comments can impact us. I've been thinking about it a lot. I'm not surprised to hear you say that. I mean, I find those types of comments to be very sticky, you know, mm-hmm. we're primed for them, right? At least women, I mean, I identify as a woman and I, I use that term very broadly and inclusively, but I don't know what it's like for people who identify as male or non-binary. But as a woman, you know, I just... I learned early on, as I said, that that my my femaleness was incredibly important to the culture, right? And so anything related to that kind of was highlighted in neon, right? Like comments from other people about my body. So they they're super sticky. I mean, I feel like I probably remember almost everything that anyone has ever said about my body, including yeah. the times I've been really thin because maybe as many people who diet and then kind of binge and diet and binge and diet are, I've just, my body has been all over the place. I've been kind of frightfully thin and I've been really super fat. And the times that I've been frightfully thin, I remember some of the positive comments that I got mostly from family and I have a kind of a, it's like a painful nostalgia. It's like, nostalgia that's like wrapped up in a bruise or something because I mean I just have to cut myself some slack like I live on this planet and some part of me is always gonna kind of want to be thin even as I'm recovering you know 
or some part of me is always going to kind of have a radar out for that or be drawn to it. Even if it's like 0.00001% of my brain, I don't think it's possible for me anyway to completely excavate those instincts and that vocabulary. I'm so happy you're saying that because I think it's so easy for people in who talk about fat politics, who talk about intuitive eating, who talk about health at every size to seem like, because I I interviewed Dr. Linda Bacon years ago, and obviously I've talked to Christine a million times and we've had conversations about this. I just don't think it's talked about enough where it's like, there might be moments where you feel something that you know is problematic or you like where it doesn't completely go away. And I just, I just think it's cool that you said that and that we're talking about that because (laughs) I have fluctuated and had relapses, I'll say of disordered eating or dieting or whatever you want to call it. And it's so hard because you feel like you're a brain surgeon who's having a stroke sort of, you know, you like, no, you shouldn't be doing that, but you are. And then this and that. And it's like, I felt embarrassment about it. I felt shame about it. I, I remember telling Christy that I was struggling and being like, Oh, like, I can, I talk about health at every size and I'm no better, but like, here I am, you know? And I just think it's, it's cool to talk about it in that way. That's the only way I can do it or else I would go crazy. You know, I, I think of it as like, I'm a native English speaker, right? I'm highly, highly fluent in the English language and I could move to another country. You know, I could move to Mexico and become fluent in Spanish, but I'm not going to forget all the English I have. And it's sort of like that. I mean, I, I am also totally fluent in diet culture. I've done every diet. I just, I, I'm fluent. So even though I'm becoming proficient and maybe edging towards fluent and a weight neutral kind of body positive, body peace kind of language, the other stuff is still there and I can manage it a lot better, but I don't think it's, I don't think I can unlearn it, right? Even, even if I hear it less and I use it less, it's still there. And this is just a small example, but like, my body as it is just right now is really fat for me. I mean, that's subjective, but I think I'm objectively pretty fat right now. And I think it's in some ways difficult, but it's, it's also been totally essential for my healing that I gain weight and that I gain more weight. And then I gain more weight after that through a combination of, I had a long phase of kind of you mean I can eat ice cream? Then I'm eating all the ice cream. You know, I'm getting the burger, I'm getting the fries, I'm getting the Doritos. Like I had a, a very long stretch of that as I was kind of liberating myself from all my rules around food. And then I also found that exercise was really difficult. Even kind of the most low key of movements, I would just immediately my brain would go into it. Like how many calories am I burning? What's my heart rate? You know, would go into that kind of diet mind of exercise. Mm -hmm. So I stopped exercising for a while. And all of that is just to say like, you know, I've gotten super fat. I basically have the body that I was always terrified I would one day have. And like the irony is like life is fine. And if anything, life is better because I'm so much more liberated. But as I get slowly, I mean, it's been like four years that I haven't really been able to exercise. And as I slowly get 
better at being able to move and just enjoy the movement and the sort of metabolic health benefit and the emotional health benefit. I'm aware that my body weight may go down because I'm moving more. And I actually have a lot of anxiety about that because it feels like a slippery slope to get into that diet mind to kind of feel giddy that I'm a little bit smaller. So I have basically everything I own is elastic (laughs) now. And it's partly because I want to make it harder for myself to gauge. Attached to that. Yeah. That's Um, so smart. So it's just like, it's just there. And I'm, I'm, that's very much something that I'm wrestling with right now is like, if my body gets smaller, what am I going to do? How am I going to manage that? Yeah. Um, That's so interesting, Zavala, because I relate to that a lot. Because Mm. here's the thing with our clothes, since I'm assuming you don't weigh yourself and I don't weigh myself and think anyone, I very strongly don't believe anyone should clothes size and how clothes fit on my body are how I know my body's size. You know, it's hard to tell your body size based on anything else, really photos or how you feel. It's really mostly how your clothes fit. And the same thing happened to me. This is kind of how I got into my most recent, we'll call it a relapse, Hmm. was when I moved to New York two years ago, I was moving quadruple the amount of walking I'd ever done in my life just out of living in Manhattan. And also I was really happy. And as a dieter, and I'm sure you know this as a chronic dieter and someone with, you know, a history of an eating disorder, for me, when I'm really happy, I tend to eat less because I don't turn to it for comfort as much. Mm. And so the combination of those two things caused my body to change. And I noticed it because my period went away and I noticed I started to hear the compliments a bit more and I started to see the clothes not fitting and I got new clothes. And I, but I, I really, really, really would be like, I'm going to buy this a little big just in case. I really, I tried to set myself up for success. I really did. <laughs> but then of course it snowballed and I got, I kind of did, I did get a little attached to it. And I was like, well, uh, here I am. Maybe this is how I'm supposed to be. Maybe a it's just uh, when I'm older, I'm uh, this way. And like, you know, it's, it's a self-honesty. Like there's a body that we all kind of, our bodies want to be at. And it's just knowing that. And maybe it fluctuates a little bit, but I knew deep down what was happening, I think on some level, but you want to be in denial. And it's just insidious, but it is jarring. Like now I'm in this place where it's like, oh, those new clothes I bought, I liked. And now I need to get new ones again. Here I am, you know? And it's just like, it's hard, but it's, it's and change is jarring no matter what the change is. Yeah. I think my, I'm not someone who thinks that clothing is frivolous, but nor am I a Kardashian, you know, I'm kind of somewhere in the middle about what, how we, how we use clothes to present ourselves to the world. But I definitely noticed that as I started recovery from dieting and started to interrogate dieting more and more. Like, what is this really about? What project have I really been engaged in and who benefits from my dieting? You know, as I started to do all of that, as I was gaining weight, my, my taste in clothes really changed as I started recovery. And part of it had to do with knowing that my body was probably going to change. And then it did change. And I didn't want it, you know, in my face every time I got dressed, like, Oh, these tight or whatever. But another piece of it was 
not wanting to look sexy in this kind of classic way our culture defines sexy. I used to wear a lot of kind of like accentuate the waist, flaunt the curves. They tell fat women don't wear baggy stuff, you know, now anyway, they tell fat women to accentuate those curves. Otherwise you look bigger, you know, it's very loaded, but I just found that I wanted to wear looser kind of more elasticy kind of Eileen Fisher kind of mm-hmm. clothes because I wanted shelter for my body shelter from my own kind of interrogating weighty gaze, gaze that was focused on weight and size and shape. I wanted shelter from like the male gaze. I wanted to experience my body less as something that I kind of adorned and put on display and more as something that I clothed and used to accomplish my day, you know? Yeah. And that's, I mean, believe me, I can get very excited about like the Nordstrom half yearly sale and Sephora and all that stuff. I just think that clothing is really powerful in recovery, especially if you find that it's not literally just about how many inches your waist is, but it's also about being subject to the male gaze and the pressure to be sexy or to be feminine or to be modest you know it could cut any number of ways but i it surprised me how how different my relationship with clothing became as i as i started to recover and it's a way to express yourself creatively i mean i i almost want to cry saying this but i was having a really tough day body image wise somewhat recently and my best friend is a stylist and and someone who i just she's been consistent in her body and hasn't struggled in the ways that I have. I mean, I maybe shouldn't speak for her, but not as visibly, I'll say that. Mm-hmm. And she said to me this thing. She was just like, yeah, let's get you new clothes. We'll get you all new clothes. And it was just like such a little thing, but yeah. it just, it meant so much to me. And I think talking about this in a really, this way that's really honest, I think, and in the way that you're describing it. And when you were talking about how you took a photo of yourself every day, there's this YouTuber I love who is a style person and she she's very petite, like extremely short. So she does a lot of style videos for people who are really short. And I'm not, but I just enjoy her videos. And she did this thing where she did exactly, you know, the outfit of the day thing and, and posted a photo of what she was wearing for a year. And she said when she did that, she had no followers. She, it was really just an account for herself. And she said that doing that is really important for crafting a personal style. Mm. To know what you like and to know what you know you like on your body and what feels good. And, and I think that that's something that, especially like I'm someone who works from home. I can see people when I need to see, but I can wear like the same four things every day. But just like yeah. having, knowing there are things that you can pull out of your closet that you know fit and just getting rid of anything that doesn't fit, I think is the best, most healthy thing you can do because it just doesn't, it's like set yourself up for success, man. You know, like don't go, if you're an alcoholic, don't go into the bar. It's like, if you have body image issues, don't keep clothes that are too tight. You know, it's just like, get rid of them and get new stuff. It's baggage. It's basically baggage. Yeah. I agree wholeheartedly. At the same time, so let's see, I'm about four or five years, four years, let's say, into this journey. Mm-hmm. I think I don't have any clothes that don't fit right now, but no, I still have a few. 
thinking about our hall closet. There's like a couple dresses and it's just like progress, not perfection. So I just think, you know, like when you, when you were saying you had a tough body image day, I mean, that's the story of my life. You know, even, even though I'm so much better than I was before mentally and emotionally, I live in this world. So like, of course I have bad body image days. It's just that they're way less impactful than they used to be. It's sort of like, if I have a bad hair day, I'm not going to like cry and stay home, you know, because my hair isn't charged with the same kind of energy that I perceive my body to be, you know, whereas in the past, if I had a day where I felt like my body was really out of compliance, you know, with cultural norms, it would be like a shitty day. Like I'd be devastated. I might actually cancel plans, yeah. you know. And now it's more like I see it and I, I can see that I'm having that day, but I can kind of carry that way more lightly than I could five years ago. Well, that's actually interesting about what you were saying about hair because. I, and I wonder if this is the case for you. I think because I am in recovery and my body's changing, I have suddenly put a much more pressure on my skin and my hair to be perfect or better. Or I also stopped coloring my hair and I stopped straightening my hair and I've been wearing it natural. And I also am someone who like has a tendency to have acne and like scarring on my skin. And, and suddenly I'm like, well, if you know i'm not going to be super thin well then i need to have perfect skin and hair and ba, 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 and like yeah. it's just it's just yeah i don't know i do has that ever been the case for you i it's like i put more pressure on those things in some ways i think yes and no so my hair when i had my daughter i cut my hair really short i have curly hair very thick curly hair and I'm growing it back out, but it was, I cut it super short because it was like something has to give. Like I can't, I can't manage like my marriage and my house and my job and my hair, you know? So <laughs> my hair became a little bit of kind of a, a moot point, I guess, or a non-issue. Um, it's funny, my skin, I feel like I do care for it way more and I'm more uptight about it than I used to be. But I think it's because I'm closing in on 40. I'm like you know, getting older. Maybe you should X out that number, actually. <laughs> Leave that number out. But, um, but I totally understand the instinct. I mean, when I cut my hair, I cut it, you know, it was like half an inch or something. And it had been well past my shoulders before then. And when I cut it, I no longer felt that I had this kind of instant shorthand for pretty. I didn't have this kind of thing about me that just quickly read as like feminine and lovely, you know, long curly hair. So I was way more into like makeup, jewelry, you know, other things that would kind of like code pretty feminine complying with beauty norms. So I totally can understand how when one part of the puzzle changes, you feel like pressure on some other aspect of it. Like guacamole. It's so, it's so it's interesting. Guacamole. I mean, I think what's, what has helped me is that, you know, pretty quickly into kind of diet recovery, which started as just this very personal, I'm in hell and I can't do this anymore kind of experience. I started 
you know, seeing the connections between what I was doing with dieting and patriarchy and racism and these other systems that I already kind of despised, you know, and didn't trust what they were telling me about myself. And so that kind of made my like anti-dieting fervor. Um, it like yeah. gave it the legs, you know? Yeah. And I think it helps keep me from getting like obsessed with trying to perfect other aspects of my appearance. Not that you're obsessed, but I'm, you know, talking about myself. No, I've, I've been obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> I have an obsessive personality about things too. And I'm an extremist, which makes, I'm very disciplined. I'm an extremist. I'm an idealist. You know, I'm very malleable. So it's like, I'm, I've got the cocktail to like have this stuff be part of me. It's like really you insidious. Do. You do. Um, so I want to go back a little bit to you making the pivot to giving up dieting because I know you talked about how you would be Googling in little in-between moments in waiting in line or whenever you had a second, mm-hmm. how to lose weight or trying the newest diet that you wanted to try. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I was really frantic. I was desperate. I was freaking out. You know, I was losing my shit really right, right before I decided to explore what life would be like without dieting. I was hanging on by a very thin thread. And it's because my body was larger than I wanted it to be. And my body weight was higher than I wanted it to be following pregnancy. And then I sort of never lost the baby weight. And I had postpartum OCD, which I treated with a number of things, but including SSRIs and, you know, those can make you gain weight or you can't lose weight. So my body was just kind of getting bigger and bigger. And I simultaneously was just totally unable to stick to any diet. And, you know, in the past, I'd like kind of always been able to do it. Like I could give it at least a few months, but I was... I was like on Atkins for a week and then I was on, you know, Weight Watchers for five days. And then I was on vegan for three days. You know, it just became, I just realized that I, I literally could not stick to the diet. I mean, almost the way like an addict who's not in recovery can't avoid the drug or the narcotic. I could not stay on the diet. And I remember calling my friend and literally saying to her, what is wrong with me? I don't know what's wrong with me. And having this kind of lighthearted, not lighthearted, but having this, you know, asking her what's wrong with me in this way that was totally focused on my failing. There must be something wrong with me that I can't do this. But it became just like sort of laughable, you know, like I could wake up in the morning and set out to eat no carbs for breakfast. And then half an hour later, I was eating like five pieces of toast, you know? So it's like, this is broken. Whatever part of me used to be able to do this is broken. And that, you know, sent me down an internet rabbit hole of like, I can't diet. Why can't I diet anymore? That kind of stuff. And I stumbled upon or re-stumbled upon intuitive eating because I had heard about it before, years before. And that was kind of the beginning. It was, it wasn't like I was excited, you know, to like join the revolution and fight for my freedom. It wasn't like that at all. It was like, I'm in a panic. I keep getting fatter and fatter. I can't diet. And 
I don't know what to do. All I know is I cannot diet. So there has to be some other way for me to be in a relationship with food. And I will try this intuitive eating thing. And it took a long time, like well over a year before I I was able to really soften my grip on intuitive eating as a diet, you know? Oh, yeah. So it was not like a lovely transition. It was pretty sloppy and... Well, you talked about how when you first found intuitive eating, I think this is so common. You were like, yeah, 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 that's great. Let me just get thin first. And then I'll, then I'll, that's a great maintenance plan, you know? And then I think also you mentioned it too, of like the, what our friend Isabel Fox and Duke calls the hunger and fullness diet, which is making intuitive eating a diet, which I am very familiar with. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's sort of like, I'm a fluent English speaker. Like if I can find a way to speak English, I will, you know, mm-hmm. um, I can translate what you're saying to me into English, which is my like native comfortable tongue, then I'm going to do it. So that's what I did with intuitive eating for a long time. And the realization I eventually came to, but that I still have to come to again and again and again is that I cannot control my eating. Like the second that I try to impose any kind of rule or guideline, I'm slipping down that slope. And before I know it, diet mind is like kind of starting to hear it again, or I'm getting a little bingy, you know, and worse than either of those things is that I'm getting extremely anxious and worked up about it. Like, it's one thing to kind of eat a whole bag of cookies and be like, oh, I ate a whole bag of cookies. Oh, I feel kind of sick, but like life goes on and I'm still a decent person. It's another thing to eat the bag of cookies and then be like in tears journaling about how awful you are, you know? Yeah. So, I just have to remind myself of that. I don't know if that will always be true. You know, if I've learned anything about my body and food, it's that I don't know where the road is going. But at this point, anyway, I have to do intuitive eating in the sense of like, I'm going to eat what I feel like eating. And I'm going to try and check in with my body and kind of my emotions and get a holistic sense of what I might want, but I'm also not going to overthink it. Yeah. What changed? What helped you get to that frame of mind with intuitive eating? What helped you to learn it? Shifting out of the hunger and fullness diet. Yeah. Um, Because dieting was so painful. So it became like, I'm still hurting myself. You know, I'm still hurting myself this is painful. What I'm doing is painful to me and I'm doing it to myself. And so at a certain point, it's, I mean, it's not a done deal. Katie, by any means, like this is an ongoing thing, right? You know, like you go to yoga again and again and again. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am like again and again and again, talking myself through these lessons, but dieting hurt so much How so? What did it hurt? Well, okay. So let me be brutally honest. There was a footnote also in my recovery where I didn't want to diet because I had become convinced that dieting ultimately led to weight gain. Mm -hmm. I was afraid to diet and then gain more weight. So that was my motivation for a moment. Yeah. I've talked about that a lot with Christy 
that using that as a motivation to kind of get people on the anti-diet train eventually, like, why not? Let's use our bias to, for good. You know, I mean, I don't know if this is problematic to say, but it's kind of like, you know, the Minnesota starvation experiment. Yeah, of course. We'll link to that for people listening. If they don't know what it is, it's kind of hard. It's kind of long to explain right this moment, but basically years ago, they, they proved in a study that could never be done today on human beings that dieting and restricting food affects your mental health negatively with very long terms. And then ultimately like messes up your metabolism, which can scare people who don't want to gain weight really badly into stopping restricting food, um, which is the case for me, you know, it's like, that was the honesty of how I got into all this and being like, Oh, well maybe I'll try this and then I won't fuck up my metabolism anymore. Yeah. I mean, that's, again, it's like fluent English, right? Like yeah. that's just part of the package of being alive and having our life stories on this planet at this period of time. So absolutely. That was a little bit of kind of, I can't diet anymore because I'm already so fat and I don't want to get any fatter, you know, but beyond that, I guess, or underneath that was the closest way I can say it. It was like, I was physically hurting myself. And I don't mean physically like metabolically. I mean like physical pain. You like, hurt your foot, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's another thing. But the hunger and fullness diet ultimately became untenable to me because I was so broken and scarred from dieting that even that kind of diet in disguise just made me feel such grief and such pain and such anxiety and such kind of horror that I, I had to find another way to think about it. It was like if someone asked you to like cut off your own foot, you'd be like, I, I can't do this. <laughs> you know, you could just save your life or something, but some part of your body, like your survival mechanism or whatever would be like, I cannot do it. Right. And I feel like that's basically what happened ultimately with dieting was some sort of version of the will to live or the will to thrive or whatever was like, yeah, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. For me, I think it's emotionally hurting me so much. And Christy talks about dieting being a life thief, you know, and how it affects relationships. So that's something I want to talk about with you and how, how has this affected your relationship with your husband? Because I know when you met him, you were still dieting and you had a moment where you kind of told him like, I know I'm, I look like this, but you just wait, I'm, I'm losing weight. (laughs) Like, can you talk about that and and what that trajectory has been and how this has affected your romantic relationships? Yeah. So when I met my husband, I was probably a little heavier than my then ideal. And I joined Weight Watchers and I was losing weight. And, you know, I, I kind of reassured him, although he was not asking for reassurance, I reassured him that, you know, I'm a little chubby now, but I got this point system. I'm working it, you know, I'll be thin again soon, whatever. And I did lose weight and then Weight Watchers fails as it always does. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. It was, it was short-lived, but He has been extremely supportive and extremely neutral, although he's not neutral about my body. He likes my body. He loves my body, but he's neutral about my weight. And 
I do still struggle with it. I mean, because I'm so much heavier and so much fatter than I was when we met, I really look different. And there's lots of ways that people can look different after 10 years, but this is how I look different. And, you know, every once in a while, I do get nervous, I get anxious, and I sort of force him to talk about it and <laughs> trying to like sniff out whether he secretly doesn't like my body anymore, you know, even though he does because he loves me and because he's one of the many people who has a variety of tastes and what's attractive to them, right? Can you but, talk about the thinking that men like women to be thin and how that, again, kind of going back to a language that we speak Can you talk about that and kind of where that sense came from in your mind? Where I kind of learned that? Yeah, and just culturally, that that's a thing that we tend to have. Yeah, I mean, I think it's almost like, where didn't I learn it? You know, I just don't think I ever saw like a fat woman depicted as healthy, as normal, as sensual, as sexual, as vibrant, as alluring, and in a normal way, like not a fetish way, but just like, I like vanilla ice cream and chocolate ice cream. You know, they're both good. It's not a fetish. I never, I just never saw that. And, you know, to the contrary growing up, because I was, I wasn't in a neutral space. I was very much in a pro-thin sort of diet obsessed space. And I mean, one thing that's kind of odd is that even when I, you know, my body has been all over the place, but when I was at my thinnest, I actually didn't date, you know, I, I just, I think I was probably too bound up in yeah. keeping that, walking that tightrope. It's be a full-time really, job. Yeah, it's a full-time job, you know, to be emotionally present or available for a, a solid relationship. I've always had kind of more luck romantically when I'm a, when I've been a little more low key about it. But yeah, I mean, I think that I still, I mean, don't we all still have this idea that that thin women are more attractive to men, and it's like a problematic refrain in our culture for so many reasons. Partly because it encourages women to focus on whether or not they're attractive to men, you know, as opposed to like what they're going to get their PhD in or like some other more interesting thing. That's so interesting. I want to go back to that piece about when dieting steals your life. I, I've had this thought so many times. It's like, well, I can't date until I'm, you know, I have these four things done or I look a certain way or, and it's just like, wouldn't you rather meet someone who sees you at your most natural self and your most undone self and still loves you rather than, you know, but then I have the thought of like, but nobody would love me that way. So uh, how can I change? You know? And it's like, yeah, it's really interesting and indicative of, of what dieting does to us mentally that you had the most luck romantically when you let go of these things mentally. Yeah. I mean, I think that I would, how do I say this? In order to be drawn to and connected to someone who's physically or sexually attracted to you at your physical heaviest, you have to kind of be okay with your physical heaviest. Like you yourself have to have some degree of acceptance about it, or you're going to 
worry about what's wrong with this person who's attracted to you. And I've definitely had bouts of that, including with my husband early on, where I was trying to like, was like on Facebook trying to check out his ex-girlfriends, like, does he have a fat fetish? Has he dated other women of color? Trying to figure that out because I didn't want to be, I didn't have the confidence, you know, that he could just find me attractive without strings. And then once you were finally able to feel that, it, it sounds like you finally let the dangling carrot that diet culture feeds us, which is that there's this future you or how Oprah often talks about how there's a thin person and every fat person or that there's this future self. You've talked about how you were able to let go of that, which probably was so freeing for you and for him and for the relationship. Can you talk about that in that context? I mean, the thing is, my husband, he did not really need to be freed. (laughs) It was freeing for me, you know? He was not wrapped up in this the way I was. I don't know if it's because he's from the Midwest. I don't know if it's because he grew up in Detroit around a lot of Black people who, you know, have a different acceptance level of fatness and body diversity. But he was never on a trip about this. Sounds great. He is great. I mean, he's not perfect, you know. (laughs) Nobody is. Nor am I. So... The freeing has really been, and it's still ongoing, um, particularly as I'm at, you know, what I think is probably my heaviest, although I don't weigh myself. The freeing has been much more for me. And part of what has enabled me to kind of let go of this ridiculous bullshit idea that, that I'm somehow caging the real me, you know, who's thinner than the current me, is that I'm pretty happy. All the things that I thought would come to pass if I were ever really fat, you know, all the horrible things, they haven't happened. And to the contrary, as I've become more liberated and more soft in my grasp on on these things and more neutral about my body, I've had energy that I've been able to pour into other parts of my life. You know, I'm probably the fattest I've ever been. I'm also the most peaceful and content I've ever been. Not that I don't have my moments, right? And my hard days and all of that. But on the whole, when I let go of this kind of myth of the future thin me, or as I I should say, as I practice letting go more and more, I mean, it's literally like taking a shackle off, you know, because you if you're dieting to try and achieve some thin person that you think is locked inside you or is you know just a few diets away that's a very or, yeah and sorry sorry to interrupt you but i just want to add in too that like it's not always a change i think for a lot of people too it's for i'll speak for myself and and maybe some people listening it's not the change that we're addicted to it's the sustaining you know like i got to just stay here It is very similar mentally from what you're describing. But anyway, go on. Well, it's true. I mean, but I mean, any way you slice it, right? That project, it's just, it's a very full-time job. Yeah. Full-time job. It's distracting and it takes you away from shit that matters. It takes you away from everything. It takes you away from your work, from your relationships, from your living situation, from art. Creativity, your engagement, your... And you never, ever, ever cross the finish line. (laughs) So it's like, 
because the goalpost is constantly moving, you know, whether it's, okay, I've finally reached X weight and now I have to maintain it. Or you get to that weight and then you just want to be one size smaller, you know, which I've, I've just done all of that. So being able to kind of put that down um, has been really phenomenal for me, you know, even though I still have to do the work of finding ways to, to love and be neutral about the body that I'm in right now. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back to one more dark story before I ask you a couple (laughs) funnier things, but I think sometimes it's good to laugh about this stuff. You talked about in Christie's podcast about, right, you know, during the time where you're like Googling diets in line and you're like Googling how to lose weight in line, which I just so related to because I I remember like my favorite thing to do when I got so high on dopamine. Now it's like going to Instagram and just like obsessively, like when I'm in line, I just like go to Instagram to like kill time. But what I used to do when I was like in line at the bank would be like Google like newest weight loss diet or like today show like diet experts. Like I just, it was just my favorite fun pastime. Like such a waste of my time and energy. But anyway, I related to that. And then I really related to something. And this is very recent for me Mm. of how you were saying you were in a boot because you hurt your foot, which ultimately was like an exercise injury, which then prevented you from being able to exercise at all. And you were probably over-exercising to some extent. And that happened to me this winter. And it was almost as sad as it was, it was, I just feel like this whole injury that I've had, it has been the biggest like slap across the face of like, we're going to have your relationship get messed up because of dieting. And that's not going to wake you up. Okay. We're going to have your career get messed up because of dieting. We're going to have this get messed up because of dieting. Like if you really won't stop, and you know better, here's a fucking injury. <laughs> like, that's what I felt like it was. Yeah. I mean, I'm very sorry to hear that you got injured. And Thank injured you. in that context, right? Which is so <laughs> just like, ugh, aggravating. I know, right? The lesson gets louder until you learn it, right? I know. I know. So, um, was that what happened to you? Tell us about your foot injury. Well, oh gosh. I mean, I'm going to assume that people are somewhat familiar with the Weight Watchers and the point system. Is that a fair assumption, you think? I hope not, but okay, probably. Okay. <laughs> Who cares? Don't get into it too much because we don't want to give anyone ideas. <laughs> I don't. And it's very sticky. I mean, I still know the point values of certain foods. It's just very annoying. Yeah. Um, I'm like that with calories. I have like an obsession with counting calories and it's very OCD. And so I have to be like, I'll get to the end of the tally and be like, Oh, never mind, Don't add it up. Don't add it up. Don't add it up. <laughs> yeah. Part of what I do is when I buy, you know, cookies or something that would kind of trigger that, like, what's the serving size and how much yeah. sugar, you know, if I can, occasionally I can't do it, but mostly I can put it in like a mason jar, like decant it into a container and just get rid of the package. That's such a great tip. And it's so much cuter anyway. It's so cute. And then you know how much you have. And the only downside is that the four-year-old can open the cabinet and like see all the goodies. Like there's no like hiding any. Which is actually probably good for her. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it is good. I mean, that not in terms of like her dieting, but just in terms of the kind of like endless parade of wants that all children have about. Totally. You know, but 
Yeah. And sometimes I'll be like, don't look, don't look, Savala, don't look, don't look, don't look. But then I flip it over and look. I know, same. But But the boot, oh God, this ridiculous boot. So after my daughter was born and I was in that period where I had gained weight in pregnancy and then gained more weight with the OCD and, you know, medication and was frantic. You know, I tried Weight Watchers because it was tried and true. Never mind that it never actually worked for more than a few months, but I had done it many, many, many times. So it felt like, you know, coming home in a certain way. The basic idea is you track your food points, but you can also, and you have a weekly limit or a daily limit, and but then you can earn activity points, which enable you to eat more food, right? In their system. And so, you know, I was doing my thing and I hurt my foot getting activity points, but I kept walking. And I mean, I really kept walking. Like a couple of weeks after I had initially hurt it, and it was still seriously hurting. I had a business trip to New York. And, you know, when you travel, like usually like food is kind of like a free for all a little bit, like you're eating in restaurants and, you know, the airport or whatever. So... I was extremely nervous that I was going to gain weight on this trip. And so I walked, I walked, I walked from Columbia to NYU. I mean, if you live in oh New York. Oh my God. Um, in high heels. Oh my God, Savala. With ice like wrapped on my foot. And <sighs> I had just taken four Advil because I wanted to make sure I got my friggin'. Oh my God. I bet they were so swollen. Oh, it was ridiculous. I mean, it was just, I look back at that and I'm like, that is the height of being out of touch yep. with reality yep. in your body. And then of course I got home and like hobbled into the doctor's office and she put me in a foot boot, a stability boot. And I couldn't then really walk or exercise <laughs> for, I think it was six or seven weeks or something. That's so, uh, I'm so sorry <laughs> that happened to you, but also... I'm glad you're okay. And I relate so much. I mean, it's very easy in the city too, to overwalk. And it's not something people talk about because it's like, walking's great. And it's such an, it's not like I'm a runner. So it's not like very clear that it's like, could be something that was excessive because walking seems like such a light thing that would be good for you. But I was doing it. I don't have a, a job where I have to be anywhere. And I was really, really sad. And so I was obsessively walking to the point where I was walking very similar distance to what you were describing for people who don't live in New York, a lot of miles. (laughs) And I essentially did the same thing. And um, I I was meeting my friend to take the ferry to the beach. And I got there. This This was very recently. And she was like, what the fuck is wrong with your foot? And I was like, what? And she was like, it's so swollen. Like, and I was like, yeah, it does hurt a little. I think it's just a muscle thing. She's like, you can get a scan on that. Like, (laughs) and so it's just, and I, I had walked, like it started hurting days before, but I was like, I can, I think you can still do it. I'm not going to take the subway. Like, you know, and part of it is like, it, you really do have to walk a little bit to live here cost effectively. But like, I really pushed that. And I, it was like, I wasn't being honest with myself. I'm sorry, girlfriend. I've been there. (laughs) So interesting. It's just, anyway, I just, I love this conversation so much. And I I feel like it was really cool that we essentially kind of shared these stories and can laugh at them and then cry about them. And you've talked about how 
the intersection of diet culture and the patriarchy makes you think that you're alone. And by sharing with vivid detail our stories, which you do so beautifully in your writing, and you know, you're writing a book of essays, I know, which is so great. Thank you. And how maybe you could just touch on this, how the personal is political. Well, I think one thing that you know, I mean, just let me start by saying that's not my phrase or, you know, it, that's a, that's an older feminist phrase. So I don't definitely, I use that line a lot, but I don't want to take credit for it. Probably your listeners already know that, but just in case, I think that one of the things that dieting did to me was really isolate me because dieting was about shame and hiding hiding my my physical body, hiding my appetite, hiding my feelings that were conflicted about this project that I was constantly engaged in. And shame and hiding leave you really locked in a dark corner of your mind, you know, by yourself. And it's all supposed to be kind of effortless. You know, dieting is supposed to be pretty easy. It's just calories in, calories out, you know. So all of these things colluded for me to kind of silence me. You know, I really did not talk about this stuff with other people. Other people had, especially when I was younger, they had kind of a blank check to talk about my body to me. But I kept my feelings about my body and my body so hidden just for a small digression. I mean, it was a huge, huge, huge deal for me to tell my husband that I weighed more than him, not even to give him the number, you know, but it was something I felt like I had to do in the process of healing. You know, I won't get into all of that, but the level of like tightly screwed down, keep a lid on it energy that I had around my dieting experience was very, very, very high. And of course, that experience is shared by millions and millions and millions of women and also men and also people who are not part of the women and men way of thinking about themselves. But you can't see that what you're dealing with isn't your own shameful, dark little secret, but actually part of a much bigger system, you know, that's acting on you. You can't see that unless you start talking to other people about what's going on with you. You know, it's like, well, either 99% of women are completely nuts and are out of touch with reality, or there's something else going on, right? And that something else is the system of patriarchy. To my way of thinking, white supremacy is tied up in it. And when people have a chance to talk about those things and to talk about the stories that they have long believed were unique to them there's room, right? We create some space for like unity and banding together to push back against these forces in the culture that, that just screw with us on so yeah. many. Oh, I love that. You're also an attorney, which we didn't even really get to touch on, but I've heard you talk about the lack of size diversity in law. Can you talk about your experience there? Sure. I mean, I'm sort of nominally an attorney right now. I'm not, I'm not practicing, but of course I work in a a legal nonprofit, and I am an attorney. I think that, I mean, this is kind of just me spitballing because there's, I don't have any research or I haven't talked about this with a lot of other people, but I happen to have gone to a, a really good law school, a top 10 law school. 
And so the, as a result of that, the legal circles that I tend to move in are, are pretty rarefied. You know, they're kind of the elite type of places that, you know, you get from Harvard, Yale, Stanford, you know, that kind of law school. And so I think, although I could be wrong, I think that I don't see very many Black people or Black women or fat people, certainly fat Black women, in those circles because diet culture is all interwoven with racism and with um, classism. Virgie Tovar does really interesting work on that um, question of class and fatness and thinness and how those things kind of bounce around and pop off each other in our culture. And so I think that basically it's a question of access that is rooted in all these other social stigmas. And it's harder to get through the various sort of gateways to an elite space, the more you kind of are not the quote unquote norm, which is in our world, kind of a thin, white, cis, hetero, da, 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 right? That's my kind of observational take, sort of what I think is going on. I suspect that if you were in a different kind of legal environment, you would see more diversity. But like many other spaces, it's like the Senate. <laughs> like, there's not a lot of gay people in the Senate. Right. There's not a lot of people of color in the Senate. It's like elite spaces just tend to be harder to get into, right? And the more kind of cultural dings you have against you, the harder it is. Yeah. Yeah. Let's also touch briefly on legal protection and the lack thereof for people in larger bodies. And I know you have some thoughts on this that I just really, really hit me hard when I, when I learned about this. Okay. Well, if I don't say what hit you hard, remind me. Because okay. I can, I can kind of tell you a couple, I can put a couple of pennies in the Savala jukebox. One is that fat people's own distaste for fatness, which is obviously internalized oppression impacts this. And then, you know, essentially you were saying how it's a club that people don't want to join. So those are kind of the two pieces I thought were extremely fascinating. Sure. So thank you for the pennies because in that other conversation, I, I don't remember exactly what I said, but because I'm not an expert on this topic and, and there are people who study this more rigorously than I do, but I think that there's a, at least two main things that prevent discrimination against fat people from from being illegal or even for being like disfavored culturally, you know, like being illegal would be really awesome. But I would settle at this point for just don't assume you can comment about my body. But anyway, I think one thing that makes it hard for legal protection to happen is that it would require a movement, right? It would require political pressure for lawmakers because they're not going to do this on their own. And in order for that movement to happen, you have to have a critical mass of fat people who are willing to identify as part of that group and, you know, kind of be seen as fat, be seen with other fat people and let go of this idea that there's some future thin them. Like they have to kind of own it. They have to sort of settle into it, even though bodies change, right? You could be fat when you're not the next, but you have to have a certain number of fat people who are going to push for that. And I think 
there's so much shame still around fatness and misunderstandings around fatness that people, they resist kind of banding together under that flag, right? I think I talked uh, in, with Christy about how, you know, for the Black Power movement to have some legs in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you had to have enough Black people who were willing to sort of do the say it loud, I'm Black and I'm proud, right? You have to have enough people who are willing to own this denigrated identity. And I don't, I don't think we're there yet. I think we're moving there, you know, like I can describe myself as fat now, whereas that would have been a heart-wrenching insult even a year ago, right? So I think we're moving there, but we're not there yet. And then I think we still think of fatness as a choice and as a personal failing often. And the law just isn't very good at protecting things that we think if you were a better person, you wouldn't be in this position, basically. Mm-hmm. We're more likely to legally protect things that we think people can't change, you know? And so it's, it's not right that somebody discriminates against a person for their skin color or that's the classic example because they don't choose that. That's just kind of how they are. We don't think of body diversity as being broad or real in the same way. And so that makes it harder too, I think. Yeah. So fascinating and problematic, but I was, I was happy to hear that of all the States where I'm from, Michigan is the one of the only ones that has legislation around discrimination against body size. Is that right? Yeah, it is. I think Michigan, I think, is the only state. And then there's, I could be wrong. I think Michigan is the only state. And then there's like municipalities, like city, counties, you know, that have it. I'm very proud to to hear that. (laughs) Go Michigan. Yeah. Well, God, I, it is so great talking to you. And I'm sorry I've taken up so much time, but do you have time for a couple quick fire questions? Yeah, go for it. And that was like such a heavy last question. So these are a bit. These are a bit lighter. Okay. What's the best thing you've eaten in the last week? Oh, no question. Sourdough toast with Kerrygold unsalted butter and honey. Dude, bread is the best thing ever, right? That's going to be my answer to that question most days because... There's just nothing better than bread. I, I really believe that pretty, pretty strongly. I'm right there with you. And it's something that for so long, so long, me too. bread, butter, and honey. I mean, talk about the sugar, fat, carbs. (laughs) So at this point in my life, I'm like, you know, I'm just going to enjoy it and and be in breathless awe over how good life is (laughs) on your plate. So that's, I I know. Oh, that's so sweet. And I, it's so, I just relate to that so much. I mean, I went to Paris and like basically learn to eat bread for the first time. Cause I was like, <laughs> Oh my God, I'm not going to not eat bread while I'm here. And know, right? yeah. And it just kind of stuck when I left. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. So there you go. That's my most delicious meal this week. Oh, I love that. And I want to make toast after this. What's your favorite part of your life right now? Oh, my favorite part of my life right now is that I am writing a book and yes. Tell us about the book and your writing process and all the things. So I've always been a writer. It's kind of like the dream that has kept coming back, even though I've done other things and pursued other things. I've just always written. And I was very lucky to have the stars align and have a book proposal purchased by Simon & Schuster. And it's a book of 
essays, basically a memoir in essays about race and gender and living in a body, living in my body, you know, in the modern world. And I think I mentioned I'm mixed, you know, I'm, I'm black, white, and Mexican, and I've been fat and I've been thin. There's also a pretty wide kind of spectrum of financial stability in, in my family from kind of very comfortable to very poor. And so I write about race and body and gender from this kind of in-between vantage point, you know, from the perspective of someone who's kind of been on both sides of the cultural divides that we have on those issues. And I'm so excited. I'm still pinching myself. It's hard to find the time to write and to find the like space and the quiet, kind of the inner space and quiet. Yeah. With my day job and my child and all that other stuff. But it's really, I, it's just, it brings me a very quiet, steady joy to be able to to do this with my time. And I just feel super lucky and excited. Oh, I'm so proud of you. And I'm, that's you, so baby. wonderful. Thank Are you, you so writing? Much. Do you have a process for it? Are you writing in the mornings? Are you writing in the evenings? Do you have any tips on organizing that? Well, it's a little bit scattershot because, you know, it just, I kind of got to take it where I can get yeah. it based on what's happening that day what's going on with my kiddo and all of that kind of thing. But I do try to write every day. The two, the two things that I am learning and have learned about writing, and it's probably true for any kind of creative thing, you could, you could chime in here too. First, writing is rewriting. So like, just keep going back to the page. And I just keep trying to work things until... I can get as close to the bone as possible and they just feel sort of brutally true. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, I mean, I deal with like, I think most creative people do just like the terror of the blank page and like anxiety about sitting down to work. And Jerry Saltz, you know, is art critic at the New York times has this great piece called how to be an artist or rules for being an artist, something like that. And one of the rules is basically work, keep working, keep working, keep working. Like the only way to cure the fear of working is to work. So that's my process. Just keep working, keep revising, and try to do a little bit every day. Oh, I really love that. It's such a high for me when I try and I do a little bit, even if it's not a bunch, even if I just get a little bit done. Mm-hmm. I it's probably problematic that I judge myself based on my pro- productivity, but yeah. that's just that's where I am right now. <laughs> I'll, I'll worry about my work addiction later. I've gotten bigger fish to fry, but like, yeah, yeah it's really it, it really is a nice welcomed thing to to make something that feels real and useful and connected to yourself and and put it out not only out in the world but just out of your head, you know. Totally. And the kind of, you know, work, 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 work. For me, that's more about process than product. You know, like at the end of the day, that could mean 20 pages or it could mean two sentences. It's more, and they're both fine, right? It's more about like stay engaged in the process. Yeah. In the process. Same could be said of life beyond diet culture, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, three steps forward, two back sometimes, but just keep going. Mm, Exactly. Greatest lesson on romantic relationships. Greatest lesson on romantic relationships. 
I mean, I could really meditate on this one, but I'm just going to say what comes to mind. My partner and I, we sometimes forget that we have this, but we do have a word that we can say that lets the other person know I am coming from a place of vulnerability and I need you to kind of put your armor down a little bit and try to meet me halfway. That's a really great idea. Yeah, it's like kind of like a safety word, you know, just so if we're talking about something that we know is kind of triggering for both of us, it helps us kind of like, be like, okay, my partner is vulnerable, and I have to try and not do my thing that I always do (laughs) when they're coming to me. Yeah, maybe other couples don't need that, but it's helpful for us. Oh, I really love that. That was really valuable. Good. (laughs) What about greatest lesson on, on parenting? Ooh, Lord have mercy. Greatest lesson on parenting. Well, my kid's only four. So I'm, you know, I'm at the beginning of of this journey. My greatest lesson on parenting has been that just like in baseball, if you're batting 300, you're in the Hall of Fame. In parenting, if like 30% of what you're doing is hitting that 10 out of 10 mark, like you're doing a fantastic job. Mm, that's a really good one. What about so. on spirituality and what do you believe happens when we die? That sort of God stuff. Yeah. I don't know. Well, nobody knows what happens when we die. I think that the answer that sits most kind of gently and deeply with me is a Buddhist Buddhist take on this, which is that when we die, we change. And I don't know what else beyond that. I'm pretty, I get, I hate to say this being from California, I'm more spiritual than religious. I check the stereotype box. But what helps me is meditating. I don't do it enough. But I really like the idea that when you meditate, it's like you're cupping your hands and letting things letting the peacefulness and the centeredness that already is kind of existing in life come to you. You're just kind of cupping your hands and dipping them in the stream that's already there. As opposed to when you meditate, you're trying to produce some reaction in yourself of calm, you know? Yeah. So that kind of cupping my hands resonates with me. And that's probably as close as I get to a regular spiritual practice. I love that. And I think going back to what we talked about up, at the beginning about our phones and how fast things move. I think it's more crucial than ever to, to do that cupping, you know? I know it is for me. I mean, yeah. it's totally essential. Maybe I have a very old fashioned brain, but I know. What else ha- helps with your anxiety? Sleep, getting my like sweating, you know, <laughs> like exercise. Although it's been problematic at times because it has triggered my anxiety too. Mm -hmm. Uh, but like real basic stuff, sleep, moving therapy is helpful. Like cognitive behavioral therapy has been helpful. Medication has also been helpful at times. And I'm pretty open about that. Yeah. But if there was one thing, it would be sleep. Like, I don't care how much kale you're eating, how much yoga you're doing, how like gluten-free your diet is. If you're not getting enough sleep, you don't feel good. It's so interesting. My boyfriend, my ex-boyfriend used to say to me, for someone who's like 
been so into wellness and done like all the all the superfoods and all the magic potions, you don't sleep and you don't drink water. (laughs) (laughs) The two like main ones, you know, it's like, it's so funny how, how we do things and, and life so backwards. I had a doctor say to me once, like, yes, you could go to Whole Foods and spend $200 on like goji berries and maca and whatever. Or you could just like eat an apple and take the stairs and go to bed on time. Like probably going to get the same result. (laughs) Yeah. It's so, it's so funny. And like, that's a whole nother conversation, but it goes into capitalism and um, what diet culture does to our bank account, which we didn't talk about. Yes, of course. I can't believe I forgot the big C. Yeah. Capitalism is like way deeply in there. might be the heart of it. Well, you'll come back. This is this is the beginning of of many. I think this was such a rich conversation, but I want to ask you the second to last question, which is a way to recommend things. So, things you're liking, books that you like, music, podcasts, foods, TV shows, just, you know, you can kind of go through any of those categories or all of them, movies, it could be all-time favorites or things you're liking now. Okay. So, on TV, I'm totally loving um Succession, which I just started watching. The second yeah, I watched a couple episodes. It's oh my gosh. I, I don't know if, if it wasn't your cup of tea, but I am just like enthralled. Cannot get enough. No, I was into it. I think I just started watching something else. There's so many options, but I yeah, know. it was good. I'm also always waiting with bated breath for Big Little Lies. I'm really enjoying that. The best book that I read, and I just read it, was How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell. Oh, yeah. I saw that on your Instagram. Yeah. It was like, I'm still thinking about it. And it was, it was really awesome. I wish everyone could read it because it's, it's very much about what we're talking about. And, um, you know, the idea that what we pay attention to has like serious impacts on many levels of our lives. Food. We already talked about toast with butter and honey. <laughs> I'm also a big fan of ice cream. And I'm also a big fan of those services that like deliver salads. Like Saqqara, I think is one in New York. Am I getting that right? Mm-hmm. There's one out here called Thistle. They just really make my life easier. And for whatever reason, maybe this is a sign of healing that I still have to do. Maybe it's a sign of progress. I don't know. But I find that I can be a little bit freer and, and looser around eating when I don't have to think about my lunch and it just comes to me and I don't have to make that decision. Yeah. But, um, I love Sakara. They did... I've, I've actually... I haven't used their like meal delivery service, but I had the founders... On, I've eaten their food before and I've had the founders on and it's... They were saying just by like eating a lot of food, like a lot of vegetables is you're eating more than you would maybe be eating if you weren't, if it wasn't getting delivered to you, you know, cause you're just kind of like, you might not buy all those things or have the ingredients. And it's kind of nice to just like have someone do it for you. Yeah. It's awesome. I mean, it, there are times when I don't do it cause I can't part with the money and times when I do, because I'm willing to part with the money, but it's been great. Let's see. The two... I'm really on the late train, but the two albums that I just downloaded were The Golden Hour, Casey Musgraves, which I'm 
loving every second of and Leon Bridges' first album. I can't remember the name of it, but also loving every second of. So that's, that's a little glimpse into my world. Great. Everything sounds great. Things like confirms that, uh, I just am happy we're friends and we've met. I'm happy we're friends too. And I'm, I'm going to watch TV together. <laughs> we can. I'm going to be in New York in October speaking at NYU and I will definitely look you up. Great. I feel like you and Christy and I should get dinner. Oh, that would be fantastic. Cause she's yeah. there too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would so love fun. that. I would yeah. love it. That'd be wonderful. Yeah. We get dinner like once a month and you should come with us and it'll be great. That would be awesome. Yeah. I'd love it. Well, thank you again for doing this. The name of this podcast is Let It Out. Did I squeeze you for all your juice? Is there anything else you wanted to let out? <laughs> oh, just that life is good. Life is good. And um, I'm really, really thankful to you, Katie, that you invited me into this space. And I feel very, very lucky that I get to do cool things like this. And um, I love your work and everything that you're giving to the world. And I just bought your journaling book, which uh. I... I mean, the whole other conversation, I'm trying to work through like birth trauma stuff. And I, I, so I'm really interested in journaling. And anyway, that's a second conversation. Well, you'll come back. You'll come back. I'm going to read your book. You'll come back. It's going to be great. Yeah, it's, it's going to be awesome. Thank you so, so, so much. This is a very lovely way to end the week. Yes, me too. So we actually always end with taking a deep breath together, letting it out. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Inhale. And let it out. (sighs) It always feels a little better to me. Yeah, that was awesome. Thank you, Katie. I'm so glad we connected. All right, as you guys can see, that was a long episode. So I'm going to keep this outro tight. (laughs) But I will tell you, A, if you're still listening right now, definitely... Let me know what you think. Share this episode with someone who you think would find it useful or entertaining or relate to it or find it interesting. And definitely follow Savala on all of social media. Her Instagram handle is the best. It's called Not Quite Beyonce. I'll link to her. But I just, you could hear it. I mean, I really love her. So we mentioned, and these will be my likes and learns because again, keeping this tight, we mentioned a couple of people in this episode, Christy Harrison and Isabel Fox and Duke, who are mentors of mine, friends of mine have done my podcast multiple times and just been really great to me in my life this last year. And if you've been listening for a while, you know more of the details. If you are new, this you know, you're, you're learning now, but I've had like some ups and downs this year, especially with the eating disorder recovery stuff. And these two figures in my life were people I was really nervous to go to and say like, look, I have this intellectual understanding of your work and health at every size and, you know, intuitive eating and all the things we talk about, but yet I'm, I'm struggling again. And I went to these people and instead of being mad at me or judging me and I'm crying, hi, (laughs) they were really nice to me and they were really helpful to me and gave me resources and advice without judgment and just said, you know, this stuff is really hard for someone who, um, you know, especially it's hard for everyone, you know? Anyway, so that's that's where we are with that. I 
love you guys. And my learn is action. You know, I think so much is talking about our feelings and our emotions and why we are the way we are and getting into our childhoods and therapy. And I think that that's all well and good, but I'm really interested in taking action right now to grow. And that's just kind of where I'm at. And I'm very much in process with the re-recovery, diet culture, body image. I have nothing useful to share in it because I'm very much still in it and always will be maybe. But I'm sharing some things in real time like that. So I hope you have a great week and I think you're amazing. I am so grateful that you're listening all the way to the end. The emoji for this week's episode is obviously the stick of butter. There has to be a stick of butter. I don't actually, I haven't actually fact-checked that. If there's not a stick of butter, bread is fine. Ideally, it would be bread, butter, and honey that you would comment on my Instagram and not quite Beyonce, aka Savala's Instagram, to let us know you're listening all the way to the end. That would be fantastic if you could muster up all three of those emojis if you can just do one that's cool i know there's a honey tub and i know we haven't used honey as the emoji of the weekend i'm sure we've used bread so anyway that's it for this week's episode one more like is my podcast with serena it's called spiraling we talked about anxiety a little bit in this episode if you're an anxious person definitely listen to it we have a full season right now we have eight episodes, including two Q&A episodes that just aired this week. It's my favorite project that I've done in recent years, and I would really love you to check it out. If you're not anxious, but you probably know someone who's anxious, give it a listen. See what you think. Serena's hilarious, and I love doing this project, and I would love to do it more. All right, you guys know skincare is very important to me, and I've had a tumultuous relationship with my skin. Maybe you guys don't know this, but in early episodes, I had several acne experts on because I have been through it with my skin. When I was in high school, I had really bad acne and then went away, and then a couple years after college, it came back again. And anyway, I don't try a lot of products and test a lot of things on my skin because it is so sensitive and... I just can't take the risk, you guys, but BioClarity is something I truly, really love. Their clear skin routine is for combination oily and breakout prone skin like myself, and that's what I use. And it comes with everything you need to keep my skin clear. And their ingredients are really, really clean and lovely. There's a three-step process that treats, cleanses, and restores your skin. And it feel I can really feel the difference. I'm taking this with me. It calms my breakouts when I get them. And they have all sorts of other routines too. They have an essentials routine for normal or dry skin. I just think they're great. And I, I would love for you guys to try them. They have this three-step regimen that's full of detoxifying and calming nutrients. And you can tell by the texture of these products that it really gives your skin you can just tell you're doing something healthy for your skin basically by the color and it help, it's been helping me with redness and hyperpigmentation because I have a lot of that from previously having acne. So you can just tell by the natural color of these products that it's really just going into your skin. 
So check it out. I think you guys will like it. I would love for you to tell me what you think and if it helps you with your skin or just makes your skin even better than it already is, go to bioclarity.com. And right now, you guys, my listeners, are going to get 40% off of skincare routines plus an additional 15% off everything on their website. That's an incredible deal, but you need to enter my code, let it out at checkout. So again, that's 40% off their routines. That's like almost half off you guys. And then an additional 15% off everything on their website. So go to bioclarity.com to get 40% off skincare routines, plus the 15% off everything on their website and use my code, let it out at checkout. I would love to see you at Kripalu. Check out your calendar, grab some friends, see if you can come. I think it'll be really fun. Again, I'm there the 27th and 28th doing a journaling workshop about remixing your resolutions, changing your relationship to goal setting and getting organized for 20 freaking 20. Can you believe it's a new decade? All right, love you guys. And I will be taking a break next week. That's another announcement that I had for you. There will not be a new episode next week. However, I'll be back again soon. In the meantime, that's a great time to go catch up on old episodes. There's nearly 300 of them. And it's a great time to look into spiraling if you haven't already. If you or your brand wants to sponsor the podcast, We have a couple more spots open this year and a few spots open next year, but I'll be in a break next week. So love you guys. And if you want to get these show notes emailed right to you, you can sign up to get those and that will give you updates on new episodes and make sure you're subscribed on iTunes. And if you do like this podcast, share it with a friend and leave a review on iTunes. It helps so much. If you like spiraling, do the same thing. All right. Talk to you soon.